A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. And uh, yes, we are going to talk about the deal reached by the uh, bipartisan group of senators on uh, Sunday. With the support, by the way, of uh, 10 Republicans. So, you know, we had seen uh, that six Republicans were involved uh, in the negotiations to try to reach a deal. But then uh, Sunday we got the names of four more Republicans who had signed on. That, in theory, gives 60 votes to this deal. Although, again, a, a framework was announced on Sunday, not the actual specific legislation. So there is... Perhaps potential for this deal to be scuttled before it gets to a vote. Although I, I have to say, honestly, uh, I would encourage you to contact your senators, let them know what uh, what you're thinking. Uh, but it sure seems like you've got uh, ten senators, four of them who aren't, four of them who are retiring this year, and six who are not up for election this year, uh, who are prepared to do something, quote unquote, uh, on this issue. And I suspect that uh, they are going to do everything that they can to make sure that that uh, specific language uh, is something that they can live with, if not uh, gun owners in uh, general. Uh, you know, I've written about this for a week now. I had a piece, a VIP piece earlier today talking about the fact that this is a starting point uh, for gun control advocates. This is not the end game. Right. It's not like they're going to say, OK, we got what we wanted. Now we're done. Far from it, uh, as a matter of fact, um, as I think this is uh, this is from I want to make sure that I get it right here. The uh, source. Yeah, this is from the uh, the New York Times talking about how this deal was put together. They said, to quote, in interviews over the past two weeks, multiple Senate Democrats made it clear that they were ready to embrace almost anything. The bipartisan talks could produce rather than engage in another fruitless standoff on the Senate floor and ending up with nothing. That outcome might have allowed them to make a potent political point, pummeling Republicans for standing in the way of popular gun control initiatives, but it would not have answered the public outcry for action. Stymied on multiple legislative fronts, Democrats are also eager to claim a win for a change. And here's the thing. They still get to pummel Republicans for not going far enough, right? There's so much more that needs to be done, so much more common sense gun regulations, so much more modest restrictions that we can put in place, whether it's a ban on so-called assault weapons, quote-unquote large-capacity magazines, waiting periods, gun registration, gun licensing, right? Any, basically, anything that isn't in this Senate agreement, Democrats can still use as a cudgel with which to uh, beat Republican candidates over the heads between now and November saying, look, they didn't go far enough. Look at all the, you know, uh, 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 wrangling we had to do to get these modest uh, restrictions in place. They wouldn't even call them restrictions, by the way, just uh, uh, modest reforms in place. So what do uh, what do Republicans get out of this? Well, again, Four of the 10 Republicans who were on this deal yesterday aren't running. They're retiring. The other six aren't up for election this year. So you could argue that mm, Republicans aren't getting anything out of this. I, I don't think that that is the case. But certainly from a Second Amendment perspective, Republicans aren't getting anything out of this. There, there was no sort of you know trade-off where, okay, listen, we'll... 
um, give grants to states to implement red flag laws if they want. But uh, in return, we're going to get silencers or suppressors off of the uh, National Firearms Act, right? There, there was no sort of horse trading going on here. But again, as I've said throughout this entire process, I think the lawmakers here were looking at this, they were treating it as a political problem. They were looking for a political solution. And so from that perspective, did Republicans get something out of this? Sure. Uh, because if this deal passes, if it is signed by Biden, Republicans can say, look, we did something. Uh, when these tragedies unfolded, we acted. And, you know, for the first time in decades, we came together with our colleagues across the aisle to find, and again, I think they'll probably appropriate some of this language, uh, common sense reforms that don't impact the right to keep and bear arms while ensuring that Americans are safe. And look, there, there is a lot of good, I think, uh, in the mental health proposals and these school security proposals. And, and I'll be perfectly honest with you, the idea of including juvenile criminal records in the background checks for 18, 19, and 20-year-olds when they're purchasing a firearm. Uh, I know that some gun rights activists have uh, said, no, this takes us in the wrong direction. I, honestly, I, I'm not particularly bothered by that restriction. Uh, again, if this was a long lasting, right, if you were 40 years old or even 30 years old and now all of a sudden, you know, any juvenile record pops up and you are forever more deprived of your Second Amendment rights, I'd have a big problem with that. Um, I think the case can be made that when you are, again, 18, 19, 20 years old, if you've got a juvenile record, maybe that should be a part of the background check process when you are purchasing a farm. Once you've reached 21, uh, should those records be sealed forevermore? as they are right now, even for 18, 19, 20-year-olds? Again, I think the answer is yes, but I see the argument that there are you know, young adults who have maybe lengthy criminal records uh, who are not, uh, those records are not uncovered and those disqualifying factors are, are not present because of the current system. So personally, that's not my big hang-up. My big hang-up with this bill has been and continues to be the push for red flag legislation. Uh, I have major issues with these red flag laws as they are written, as they are on the books in states around the country, including the Commonwealth of Virginia, where I live. These are uh, gun-specific solutions to a dangerous problem or a dangerousness problem or a mental health problem. Uh, and yet, it sounds like from the get-go, you know, red flags were a part, uh, were, were seen as uh, an integral part of these discussions. Uh, Maine Senator Susan Collins, uh, who was part of this uh, compromise uh, agreement, says that uh, her constituents say they're all asking the Congress Act. They're not sure what should be done, but there are things that Congress can do that'll make a difference. There is more of a sense of urgency that something has to be made into law. Some Democrats said that they were worried that they were handling Republicans a face-saving win that would allow GOP lawmakers to claim that they were acting on guns despite an unwillingness to take more significant steps, <clears throat> including gun control measures that polls have shown are backed by large majorities of Americans. But they said that they were willing to set those reservations aside in the interest of getting an agreement with both substantive and political wins for each side. Yeah, they'll set that aside for now. 
And basically, if this deal becomes law, the minute Biden puts pen to paper, maybe even before then, maybe as the bill's being sent to his desk, what you are going to hear from Democrats is our Republican colleagues didn't go far enough. They refuse to take this issue seriously. I mean, again, they're, they're, they are going to use this as a political win. As the New York Times pointed out, Republicans will try to use this as a political win as well. Uh, it is maybe something that we don't want to talk about as segment advocates, but again, there have been a number of polls coming out over the past month showing that support for gun control has risen, not only among Democrats, but among independent voters and, yes, Republicans as well. Uh, Republicans and Democrats alike are looking ahead towards November. Democrats want to do something to fire up their base. And, you know, I said last week, and I stand by this, that I think that Biden would be fine if the talks collapsed and nothing was done. I think Chuck Schumer would be fine with that as well. Uh, Because, again, they could say, look at these recalcitrant Republicans. They won't even lift a finger to save children. Right. They, They, again, continue to use this as a cudgel. But they get to keep doing that anyway. Right. They get to continue to try to use this issue to fire up their base. For Republicans, the political victory is saying, uh, look, we did something. We saw the horrific tragedies in Buffalo and Uvalde, and we acted, but we acted in a way that did not uh, strip anybody of their right to keep and bear arms. I think that could be disputed, but that's the argument that's going to be made. Uh, We stood firm against gun bans. We stood firm against waiting periods. We stood firm against raising the age to purchase a firearm, a, a long gun up to 21. Right, so Republicans can say, "Look, we didn't allow anything to be done to to go after the uh, the rights of law-abiding gun owners." Again, I don't think that's quite the case, given that red flag laws can impact people who have not been accused of a crime, much less convicted of one. Right, you don't have to be accused of a criminal offense to be subject to a red flag petition. All that has to happen, depending on again what state you live in, is that. One of the individuals who are authorized to file a petition, and it may be, depending on where you live, uh, confined solely to law enforcement. It may be as broad as former teachers, former coworkers, former dating partners, family members, basically anybody and everybody. Uh, those folks can file a petition saying, hey, uh, we think Cam's dangerous and we should take his guns away. And I don't have to be accused of a crime much less, again, arrested, charged with, or convicted of a crime. All that has to happen once that petition has been filed is a judge decides that, okay, based on one side of the evidence, yeah, Cam's probably a danger to himself or others. And now that we've identified that Cam is probably a danger to himself or others, we're going to take Cam's guns away. That's just all the problem, right? Now Cam's no longer dangerous. Again, I I have so many issues with these red flag laws. Again, from the lack of uh, due process protections, the fact that public defenders are not available to those who are uh, the the subject of a petition if they can't afford an attorney, because these cases take place in civil court, not in criminal court, to the underlying fact that, again, we're supposedly dealing with someone who's dangerous, right? That's the whole point of a red flag law, is to identify someone who's dangerous. And then once we've done that, under a red flag law, 
We take any illegally owned guns away. We say you can't legally purchase a gun for six months or a year, and we'll, we'll revisit the issue then. And then we leave that supposedly dangerous person to their own devices. We leave them with their matches and gasoline, with their sharp knives, with their pills, with their rope, with their belts. We don't mandate any sort of mental health treatment. We certainly don't provide it to that supposedly dangerous person. We just sort of wipe our hands once the red flag petition has been approved. And again, if we're really dealing with dangerous people, I would say that we need to do more to deal with the individual. But again, that costs money, right? That takes time. And a quote-unquote red flag law I think is a much simpler and simplistic solution uh, for politicians who are looking to say, again, that they've done something. Does it really make much of an impact? I would argue no. Uh, you know, the, there, there haven't been a lot of studies. It's kind of hard to prove a negative, right? Well, the presence of this red flag loss prevented this crime from ever occurring. We, we, we can't really prove it, but just trust us on this one. But there's been uh, one study that's widely talked about uh, out of Connecticut. They looked at uh, Connecticut's red flag law, and they found they used a synthetic model of, of the state of Connecticut, by the way. So they, this is how they kind of determined. But they, they found that for every 20 red flag petitions that were successfully initiated, one to two suicides were prevented. So a 5 to 10% reduction in suicides among that universe of red flag subjects, right? Not overall, but just among that smaller universe of, of people who've been subjected to a red flag petition. Which begs the question, what happened to the other individuals? The uh, 18 other people. Did the red flag law fail to prevent them from committing suicide in another former fashion, by another means, or maybe even with an illicitly obtained firearm? Or were some of those 18 other individuals never really a danger to themselves or anyone else at all, and yet still had their Second Amendment rights stripped from them, again, without necessarily being accused of a crime, much less being charged or convicted of one? That seems to me to be a pretty important question. And uh, if we're looking at saving lives, is there a way to reduce suicides by more than, and I should say fire-related suicides, by more than 5 to 10%? Uh, again, without engaging in these types of tactics that do lead to individuals being stripped of their rights, I would argue without due process. I think there are things that can be done. But, um, you know, it's not a soundbite solution. It involves things like increasing access to mental health, which I know is a part of this package, too. Uh, but it also involves things like really fixing our crumbling criminal justice system. We actually have a public defender shortage in many jurisdictions around the country. So even if we wanted to have public defenders as a part of a red flag process, I don't think it could be easily done. Because these public defenders are already overworked. And in some jurisdictions, in uh, Oregon, for example, you're seeing cases that are being dismissed outright 
because the defendant doesn't have representation. So, yeah, I, I am I'm not a fan of the red flag provisions. I understand, again, this is grants to states that want to implement these red flag laws as opposed to a federal red flag law. Uh, I suppose that is a uh, a minor improvement. Well, I, I wouldn't even call it a minor improvement. I think it's a it's definitely an improvement over establishing a federal red flag law. But that doesn't mean that it's still a step in the right direction, uh, valuable or worthwhile to anyone other than politicians who are looking to say that they want to do something. The uh, reaction, by the way, from uh, Second Amendment groups has uh, varied. Gun Owners of America tweeted out, here we go again, Republican legislators compromising your rights, getting nothing in return. Uh, items chiefly of c- concern include, and then they just <laughs> quoted uh, Jake Sherman's tweet laying out all of the provisions uh, in this measure. Firearms Policy Coalition. I don't know if you can read that. I think you can. Uh, bleep you. No, in response to a Joe Biden statement, the uh, NRA saying that they will, quote, continue to oppose any effort to insert gun control policies, initiatives that override constitutional due process protections and efforts to deprive law abiding citizens of their fundamental right to protect themselves uh, into this or any legislation. Uh, The question then becomes, what, if anything, can be done at this point with 10 Republican senators signing on in principle anyway? Uh, And other Republican senators, by the way, uh, folks like Cynthia Loomis of uh, Wisconsin, or excuse me, Wyoming, saying last week that she was surprised by how much support for new gun legislation she's hearing from her constituents. What can we do to either try to stop this bill or at least remove the uh, uh, red flag language and other restrictions uh, in the legislation? I mean, now would be a good time to be lobbying uh, those senators. Uh, And and I would argue that that lobbying needs to be done by you and I, uh, as well as by these organizations. You know, one of the realities that these lawmakers are looking at, again, just a few months out from Election Day, uh, are these poll numbers showing that even some Republicans now are more willing uh, or, or, or even eager in some cases. Uh, to uh, adopt uh, new restrictions on the right to keep and bear arms. And if we are only talking to ourselves and talking about how stupid this is and what traitors these senators are, I'll be honest with you, we're going to lose. Because the other side is not just talking to themselves. And we are at, I believe, a we, we have a structural disadvantage in this debate. Gun owners are not a majority in this country. Uh, polls will show anywhere from, you know, 36 to 40 percent of households say that uh, they have a gun in the home. And that's probably underreported. Um, but I still don't think that we have a majority uh, of uh, Americans who are gun owners. Estimates are about 100 million Americans. That's Pretty close to half. But not every gun owner is a Second Amendment activist, as you and I both know, right? We know plenty of gun owners who are like, yeah, I'd be willing to give up this right and that right over there. Yeah, I'd be fine with that. We we know that. So it's not even just a matter of gun owners versus non-gun owners. It is a matter, I believe, of Second Amendment advocates and activists versus those who 
falls somewhere on the spectrum of, ah, I don't really think much about this issue, to we need to repeal the Second Amendment and take every gun away from every legal gun owner out there, right? There, that's, a, that's a pretty big spectrum. We're not going to reach those folks on that extreme. I'm just, I'm ready to come for your guns. Hell yes, we're coming for your guns. But the folks who don't think much about this issue, they're not gun owners yet. Maybe they will be one day, or maybe they are gun owners. But again, they, they, they see what happened in Uvalde. They see what happened in Buffalo. And they say, God, I just don't want this to happen anymore. We have to do something. And what they're hearing is, well, we got to do something on guns, right? We take these, quote unquote, moderate, rational, reasonable, common sense steps, uh, then that can make a difference. And I worry that what they're hearing from us, from Second Amendment activists, is basically, nah, screw you, piss off, shall not be infringed, come and take them, right? Which aren't great arguments if you're actually trying to persuade somebody. And like it or not, and this is a tough pill to swallow, unless we are able to persuade some of our fellow Americans that what the gun control advocates are saying is not going to make them any safer. It's not going to make their communities safer. It's not going to make their kids any safer. Then I think you are going to continue to see this emotional response not a logical response, not a rational response, but an emotional response to emotional events like the murder of 19 fourth graders and two teachers, a whole sway. So, I, you know, I, again, I would, I, I am not a fan of the package as it was introduced, although I do think that there are some beneficial aspects to it. I think the red flag laws take us further away from the real tough conversations we have to have about our crumbling institutions, including our criminal justice system, including our mental health system, including our schools. And they allow politicians to pass the buck and say, well, look, we, we did something. I'm not a fan of that, especially, again, when it comes at the expense of our right to keep and bear arms. But this is me talking to you, presumably another gun owner, presumably another Second Amendment activist, and the conversations that we can have with one another, again, aren't necessarily going to resonate uh, with the broader public. And that is the challenge that we face going forward, not only when it comes to the Senate deal, but at the state legislative level as well. Uh, and there, look, there are going to be some blue states that go absolutely nuts with their anti-gun legislation. We are about to see a whole new wave of Second Amendment litigation coming at the state level, Delaware is talking about banning so-called assault weapons. California is moving about a half dozen bills. New Jersey's moving a whole new package of uh, gun bills, too. We're just going to see more bills come out of New York in uh, the wake of the Bruin decision. Basically, the blue states that can get away, that they've got the numbers, they are going to come hard after the Second Amendment. But in those swing states... Uh, in states that don't have firearm preemption laws, where localities can impose their own local gun control restrictions. The outcome of that debate, which I think is going to happen, is not a foregone conclusion. 
And it is one of the reasons why, again, we have to be engaged. We have to be involved. Part of that means actually listening to what somebody's saying. And they say, yeah, you know what? You and I are actually on the same page. We both agree that these types of things shouldn't happen. But let me tell you why I think a gun control solution is wrong. And let me then tell you what I think will work. Right? If we can do that on a sustained basis, if we can point out the flaws in the gun control strategies, while also saying, look, I don't want to do nothing. But if we're going to take this moment and we're going to make, you know, substantial progress towards reducing these types of attacks, it's not going to happen by restricting in any form or fashion the right to keep and bear arms of law-abiding citizens. You've got to focus on the small number of violent offenders out there, many of whom, by the way, are quite prolific and well-known, not only to law enforcement, but their local communities. And then we have to do a better job, we have to do a much better job of identifying those sort of needles in the haystacks, right? Those very few individuals out there who are intent, maybe even planning at this moment, an attack on as many innocent, defenseless people as possible. And the way we do that is not by casting a broad net over every legal gun owner out there in the hopes that we're going to snag one of these murderous nutbags. The way we actually do that is to, I believe, make the haystack smaller. Right. If we're looking at some sort of federal response here, we're looking at trying to identify some 200 people in a nation of over 300 million Americans. But the Secret Service, in its report on active school shooters, pointed out that 94 percent of them communicated their threats beforehand. They said something ahead of time. To somebody either online to somebody at school, a family member. And I would argue that if we can shrink down the size of these haystacks, and now we're not thinking about the entire United States, but now we're thinking about looking for that behavior in our communities, in our schools, if we, the people, do a better job of looking and saying something when we see something that alarms us, uh, I think actually that would do a hell of a lot better job uh, than throwing a red flag on the books or not even throwing a red flag on the books, but uh, offering grants to states if they want to put a red flag on the books. But again, that's a substantive discussion. It doesn't really involve legislation, doesn't necessarily have a, a, a room for uh, the, the politicians to get involved and claim credit. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're not talking about things like that. Because the politicians want their victory, too. All right. As I said, uh, I would encourage you, contact your senators. Let them know where you stand on this uh, uh, framework. We don't even have the actual uh, legislative text yet, but uh, let them know where you stand on this framework. And we will uh, continue to follow this uh, in the uh, days ahead. Meanwhile, let's turn our attention now to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We'll start there 
Here's the uh, headline. Shooting suspect who got probation headed to prison after pleading guilty to another shooting. Yup. This was in uh, Beloit, Wisconsin. A 25-year-old who was sentenced to probation in connection with a shooting in June of 2020 is now headed to prison after pleading guilty to another shooting. Uh, Rock County Judge John Wood revoked Jaquez Wiggins' probation on two counts of second-degree reckless injury from April of 2021. That's when he was sentenced for the June 2020 shooting. And sentenced him to four years in prison, as well as two years of extended supervision. In a separate case, Wiggins pled guilty to first-degree recklessly endangering the safety by use of a dangerous weapon, as well as possession of a firearm by a felon, in connection with a drive-by shooting in Beloit in November of last year. And in that case, Wiggins was sentenced to five years probation. I mean, come on! Are you kidding me? Guys involved in a shooting in June of 2020, he gets probation, and now he's charged with another shooting. His first probation's revoked, he's going to prison for four years, and he's getting probation for the second shooting. I mean, this you want to talk about a cycle of rinse and repeat? There you go. And something tells me that, uh, I, I hope it's not the case, but something tells me that uh, we might be seeing Jack S. Wiggins' name in the news again here in just a couple of years. Uh, today's Armed citizen story from Lexington, Kentucky, where a man charged with murder found not guilty uh, by a jury of his peers. This was uh, on Friday, and uh, Ja'Cory Burns uh, found not guilty of murder in second-degree assault after a shooting that occurred in downtown Lexington last year, just two hours of deliberation by the jury before they came back and found Burns not guilty of both charges. Now, Burns had admitted to shooting 22-year-old Lonnie Oxendine during a fight outside of the Lexington City Center on January 31st of last year, but he said he did so in self-defense because he was worried that he had been shot. Um, according to the uh, defense attorney, um, Burns had received threats the previous night from someone that he assumed was Oxendine. Oxendine was a rapper. Burns was a, a promoter. And Burns owed Oxendine about $900 from a canceled show that Oxendine was supposed to perform in. Uh, that performance never took place, apparently, uh, because there was some sort of dispute about a VIP section. Uh, Oxendine wanted back the $900 that he had paid for access to the VIP section. Um, there was a series of Snapchat messages that were threatening. Uh, Burns said he believed Oxendine sent the threats. It wasn't officially proven that the messages came from Oxendine. They did mention the $900 being repaid to him. Uh, which would, again, make Burns think, okay, this this guy, I know who this is. The defense attorney said these threats are not from some unknown entity out of the blue that no one's heard of, police have found, or Lonnie Zonderize mentioned. Uh, those threats, ladies and gentlemen, are from Lonnie Oxendine. Video footage from the scene of the shooting showed that Oxendine punched Burns. Uh, Burns testified that Oxendine said if he didn't give him the money that was owed to Oxendine, that uh, Oxendine said he was going to have his, quote, shooters kill him. He also argued that Oxendine was planning to commit robbery and get the money that he felt he was owed, quote, one way or the other. And uh, that is when Burns believed that his life was in danger. Uh, he drew his firearm and uh, shot and killed Oxendine. Prosecutors had argued that uh, Burns, quote, brought a gun to a fist fight. Uh, but again, jurors apparently did not agree. Uh, again, just two hours later, ruling that uh, Burns was not guilty of murder uh, and acquitting him of uh, all charges. 
All right, finally today, our good deed of the day. I love this story. Miami-Dade, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. Uh, C.G. Crawford, who is a bus driver in Miami-Dade County, who has gone viral with a video showing her helping a blind man walk across a, a busy street uh, in her uniform, by the way, because he actually was driving a bus at the time. But uh, she said it was a typical Thursday. She noticed a new passenger needed some assistance. She said she noticed the man was blind. And when she asked the guy if she could help him, she says he initially resisted. But she said, listen, it's not going to be a problem. She said, I-, I want someone to do the same. And that's how I was looking at it. It was the right thing to do. So she asked her other passengers, hey, do you mind if I walk him across the street? Nobody objected. So while she's walking him across the road, somebody uh, in a nearby car noticed what was going on, started recording, posted it online. Of course, it goes viral. Uh, Crawford said uh, she had no idea that anybody was even paying attention. Uh, She said the man she was talking to and walking across the street said, "Uh, you know, you're an angel. And that's why I said, you know what? If I was strong enough, I'd carry you. And that's what the video showed of us actually laughing. Uh, She said that there were drivers who stopped to allow her to cross the street. They blew their horns and waved, telling her she was doing a good job. She said, uh, quote, what everybody was seeing Kindness and compassion, an extra one minute, two minutes, you know, just to pause, just for that act. Uh, she says uh, this was something that the world needed at that moment to show that it's still some good people out here in this world and everybody deserves some love and compassion and understanding. So in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. And yeah, I think that moment did resonate with folks. Uh, C.G. Crawford there in uh, Miami-Dade, Florida, we thank you for your very good deed. And I thank you for being a part of the program today. And as always, I look forward to doing this again with you tomorrow. We uh, will probably have more talk about the uh, Senate gun deal, including an outside reaction as well. In the meantime, don't forget to check out BarryAndArms.com throughout the day for even more Second Amendment news and information that you need to know about, like the slap on the wrist given to uh, juvenile defendants. 21 days behind bars for 22 stolen firearms. That's right. I mean, as long as we're talking about, you know, juvenile records and stuff like that, can we talk about the lack of consequences for committing really serious crimes if you are a juvenile? Well, we are at BarryAndArms.com. If you like what you see, by the way, you can always become a VIP subscriber. All you got to do is go to BarryAndArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS. And you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. As our way of saying thanks for showing your support for the independent pro second amendment journalism we're doing. We're going to give you exclusive analysis and kind you won't get anywhere else. Because your support does matter and it does make a difference. Until then, be well, be safe, be free. Be free.